Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to ISM Fellows in Conversation, a podcast from the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. The episodes in this series present a discussion between a current ISM student and a visiting researcher in the ISM Fellows program. Each year, the Institute hosts a cohort of fellows who are in residence for one year to pursue interdisciplinary projects and teach at Yale. The following conversation focuses on the diverse research, teaching, and creative work of a current ISM fellow. From the Yale Institute of Sacred Music, I'm Marika Proctor. I'm an MAR student in Religion and the Arts, and this is the ISM Podcast. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with South African composer Bongani Ndodana Breen, whose vocal, symphonic, and chamber music has been heard by audiences throughout the world. His opera Winnie, based on the life of anti-apartheid activist Winnie Mandela, was a critical success on its premiere in Pretoria, and is the subject of a chapter in Naomi Andre's book, Black Opera, History, Power, Engagement. Dr. Ndodana Breen holds a Ph.D. in music composition from Rhodes University and was a fellow at Harvard's Radcliffe Institute during the 2019-2020 school year. We're thrilled to have him here at Yale and the ISM, where he's working on an original composition entitled New Africa Passion. Bongani, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure being here. So you're here at the ISM working on this brand new composition. New Africa Passion brings together gospel texts, languages of the African diaspora, and a pan-African sonic perspective. Can you just give us a sense of what does it look like to bring all those things together on a day-to-day basis? Well, I mean, this is the first uh, major sacred work that I um, have composed and I'm actually very grateful to the Institute of Sacred Music for giving me, you know, the time and the space and the resources to be able to to do this work. As you said in your introduction, um, I'm more familiar with uh, opera and other secular uh, uh, mediums. So this is um, a thrill for me. Um, I'm approaching this, uh, I, I suppose, with my opera composer's hat on. It's very much driven um, by narrative story. Um, and uh, I was, I'm very grateful actually to be, uh, to have input from um, the wonderful experts that we have here, like Professor Rate, mm. for instance, um, and uh, wonderful conversations also with um, some of the fellows um, in my cohort about this. Um, it's a very interesting project for me in that I'm trying to open up, you know, this uh, uh, biblical story. And it is, uh, for me, a story of human drama, tragedy, uh, betrayal, loss. Mm. But also there is this, you know, wonderful um, end to it, which is the resurrection Mm. um, and and the hope of redemption for mankind. It came out, uh, I suppose, very sad circumstances for me as I was trying to figure out the events of the spring of 2020, Mm. um, when we all witnessed these disturbing images on our television screens, folks being killed, uh, black men and women being killed uh, by law enforcement in this country and seeing that level of injustice and inhumanity. Um, And I I think for me, it made me um, look um, at this particular part of the New Testament Mm. and want to do something about it. My approach, of course, is very inclusive. Um, in, in that I've, I've taken a, a very pan-African approach, as, as you pointed out, um, and also wanted the story to live, you know, beyond 
um, the Western concept of a passion. Uh, I mean, there's some you know great works in the canon, of course, Bach and everybody else. But this is a new approach for me um, in that I'm taking, again, uh, a more of an African uh, approach to this. Well, I wonder if you could unpack for us sort of this idea of the Pan-African sound. So you were born in the Eastern Cape province of South Africa. Yes, I was born in the Eastern Cape of South Africa, which is the traditional sort of like homelands of the Xhosa-speaking uh, people. Yeah. And as a composer coming from that culture, you we are aware of uh, the role that music plays in society. Um, in African culture, um, music is often not an abstract concept, it is very much part of um, a lived experience mm. in terms of our rituals, in terms of our daily life, um, and in terms of our ceremonies as well. And so in any African household, in any African gathering, there's always music there, uh, you know, keeping things together. And of course, with music in Africa, there's this link to movement um, and so the chorus in this work um, will not be standing still, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, so all those elements that occur naturally in African music uh, and in African music making, I want to incorporate in this work. That's really exciting. You know, when I think Pan-African, I'm thinking of conversations that came out around Black Panther. Have you seen that film? Yes, actually, one of my cousins. Yes. Um, her name is Black Rock. It was one of the artists featured in one of the tracks oh, uh, with Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. Oh, cool. Oh <laughs> the track gosh. is Oops. Yeah. She's, she lives in south of France. But okay. she's also, I mean, like, we come from this musical family, but she just chose the profitable side of it. Yes. <laughs> Quite smart of her. So I'm wondering, is there something, I mean, I just remember conversations about what it meant to create a sense of a Pan-African identity. Africa is a continent that um, contains many cultures. And so you're coming from the Kosa culture specifically. Can you give our listeners a sense of what are some of the sounds that you are building um, when you think of what's Pan-African versus South African? I think when we look at Africa, we must also remember the consequence of the Berlin Conference in the 1880s, where these current political borders uh, and boundaries in Africa were actually not uh, conceived by Africans themselves. It was mm. in a conference in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at Africa, I rather look at it in regions, especially with sub-Saharan Africa, you sure. know, the West Africa, East Africa, Central Africa, and Southern Africa. And the great um, African Ghanaian um, musicologist J.H. Kwabena Kentia has a very curious way of describing um, African music that, you know, these are networks of overlapping styles mm. that share, you know, similar uh, procedures and, and certain concepts. Um, and I look at it that way. And I mean, there are certain instruments, for instance, let's take the, the mbira, which is uh, commonly known as a thumb piano, it's a lamellophone, mostly, um, you know, kind of concentrated around uh, Zimbabwe, mm. the Shona people. But that instrument appears all the way from, you know, in traditions in West Africa, all the way south to the Limpopo. Uh, if you look, at, for instance, the xylophone tradition in Africa, you're looking at the southeast from uh, Mozambique 
all the way to East Africa, to, you know, to Uganda. Mm. So there are these long stretches of traditions that overlap, right. you know, in the continent. And I think that's where I approach my music making from, um, in these ancient traditions that are interrelated, overlapping. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my compositional style, um, you know, I borrow from these ancient African traditions, for instance, uh, you know, how the mbira, for instance, is performed with two players, Mm. one playing a pitch Mm -hmm. slightly ahead um, of the other. And the interlocking uh, music, for instance, of the... um, the xylophone tradition in East Africa, found in Uganda, what is now Uganda, um, of the Baganda people, you know, with the um, Amadinda and the Mbire and all these things. Uh, and of course, closer to home, um, the traditions, for instance, of the timbila, which is not only the instrument, but the actual music itself. Uh, it's also a xylophone tradition, very complex. Um, from uh, It's by the Chopi people in southern Mozambique. And, I mean, these are multi-movement um, works that last about an hour. Uh, there's dancing in them and, and a great deal of storytelling. I was exposed to all these traditions where I grew up and went to school, Gramstown, because there was this large archive, sound archive there um, at ILAM, the International Library of African Music. Now, this was a, an African sound archive that was founded by Hugh Tracy, and then his son, Andrew Tracy, uh, took over um, in the managing of the collection and forming of the, of the institute um, and is now retired from the institute uh, and is a very well-known ethnomusicologist. Um, so it was wonderful for me as a child to be able to travel to all these parts of Africa on an afternoon after school without having a passport and be immersed in all these wonderful ancient African traditions. What does this look like day to day? Like, what's the daily life right now for an ISM fellow who is composing a major new work? Is every day different? Have you sort of plotted out your fellowship year? Have you gotten anything up on its feet yet? I'm curious with singers and instrumentalists. Well, we have a premiere date, I'll tell you that. Hooray! Um, So it's going to be in the 23-24 season in Boston. We are sort of like cementing uh, some details around that. In terms of my day, day-to-day schedule, you know, having written these um, uh, large-scale operatic works, none of these projects um, are ever the same in terms of how you approach them. And with this one, I because I have nobody else helping me with the libretto, um, I've been exploring text quite a great deal. Mm. Um, and, you know, of course, I make sketches um, daily, um, of of thematic material musically. Now that we have uh, settled on instrumentation um, a bit more, because we had a vague idea of, of what the instrumentation is like, uh, my ideas are starting to um, concretize, I suppose. Um, but it's a it's a daily grind. I mean, mm. a pleasurable one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, of trying out ideas and stitching ideas together. So you say digging into text sounds like with Winnie and maybe some of these other vocal pieces, you've been collaborating with someone for text? Of course, you always have librettists, which has made your life easier. I mean, I'm not saying that having a librettist means that as a composer, you're not present. Of course. Um, no, you're always there, but it's just the, the vast majority um, of the 
of the work is being done by the by the librettists. But in this case, it's just only me. But I mean, there is source material because I'm course. working with a great story. Yeah. So, well, that's my next question. Maybe are you are you finding? Is it one of the gospel narratives that's sticking out to you? Or are you sort of compiling? Yes, actually, um, we had conversations. Uh, again, this is with uh, Professor Rate, and um, I've settled on you know the Matthew. Um, a gospel. It's much more, I suppose, harrowing. Mm. Um, St. John is full of hope, I suppose, in the end. <laughs> Maybe we could talk about Winnie, the opera. I come from a theater background, so I'm particularly excited to hear what was the casting process like for something like Winnie, which features these major figures in the anti-apartheid struggle, you know, that are just sort of huge within the South African and international conscience? Oh, well, in addition to being the composer for Winnie, I was one of the three producers. Um, so I had some say in some of the matters. Uh, and I remember when we held the auditions, the wonderful voices that, that came through to audition for these roles. As you know, South Africa has, I mean, in the last 20 years, produced some great singers, people like Pretty Yende, Levi Strauss, uh, Sehape, uh, who've won all these awards like Operalia and et cetera. And they're doing very well singing in all these major opera houses. So, I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches of, in terms of what we have <laughs> uh, to work with in terms of singers. So I was very excited to be working um, with these folks. I had already chosen the chorus to collaborate with, which is the Gauteng Chorus. Mm. Um, And I mean, just great, amazing, rich voices with a very, you know, wide range in terms of color from Mm. being, you know, dramatic and strong to being like very delicate. Um, So that was great. The uh, conductor that we selected uh, was from Germany, Jonas Albert, and he became a very good friend and also a very good advisor on how we treat the orchestra. For the orchestra, we use the Quasul Natal Philharmonic, Mm. which is a a great and solid orchestra um, in South Africa. The casting process... um, you know, there were certain discoveries that we've made, the certain voice types that um, I changed after hearing Interesting. Um, certain voices. And I recall that we had to make a very strange decision in that we couldn't find this one particular character that is the uh, major Tiana Swanepoel, who was basically mm. the uh, a security policeman that was torturing Winnie. It was... Um, a difficult role to cast because you needed somebody with a certain kind of gravitas because, you know, this is quite an ugly person. You know, you needed that weight, you needed that darkness and mm. nobody coming through the audition room, you know, can like fit that character for us. So in the end, one of the panelists um, in the audition platform who actually was a singing teacher um, and was semi-retired um, from opera himself, but he was teaching at the opera school there in Pretoria, said, I think I can sing this. Would mm. you audition me? And then we found <laughs> Major Swanepoel. Um, and also what helped is that, you know, he himself was an Afrikaner of that generation that, you know, served in the army right. in the 1980s. Right. And so he could, you know, bring a lot of that um, into the character, and it worked uh, very well. When we had cast everyone, we were very fortunate to have an African-American uh, woman director mm. for, 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 um, for the project. 
um, I mean, this is a woman's story, and uh, and I think uh, Shirley Joe Finney, the director, brought a lot um, of perspective on that. Um, but what was amazing is how, because this is a huge cast, you're talking with the chorus and all the characters, how she brought everybody to the same, I would suppose, mental space. Mm. Um, and it was a process that I don't think anybody else could have done but her because, I mean, this is a very painful story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do you deal as a cast member with what you're doing on stage and what you're witnessing on stage, uh, which is not particularly pleasant, mm-hmm. um, how you deal with issues of torture, murder, beatings, abductions, and all that kind of stuff which comes up. Um, and so I think she created a safe space for everyone um, to be able to access, um, again, this, this, this deep intensity that the, that the story uh, requires, and I'm grateful to her for that. I don't think you can approach um, these events and uh, this particular part of South Africa's history. I think it's the darkest part of our history, the sure. 1980s. Sure. Um, you can't, uh, uh, you know, sort of like approach that um, in any kind of like ordinary way. It's uh, it's not an ordinary story. Right, right. And for our listeners, I mean, this is an opera that features, yes, other major figures like Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I know once you gave a chat with the ISM and we got to see a bit of a clip, I think, of a scene that he was in. Yes, I... I um you know, the Archbishop is a remarkable man, uh, and uh, unfortunately, as you know, he's passed on after having uh, led, um, I think, an exemplary and, uh, and saintly life. Um, when we got to meet him, you know, we had tea with him the first time we met to tell him about this and that you know he's going to be one of the, the characters. Who sets that up? Who sets that tea up for you? Um, so uh, we called the office, okay. um, and of course, he had known the other producer, Mfuntim Vundla, in South Africa, who comes from a very prominent family and you know um, has a big television career in South Africa as a producer. <clears throat> so we all come in, and you know, we, there's this like holding room that we're in, um, and. The staff is insisting you know, we have tea and cake. Please have the cake. It's like, no, 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 we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we get led into the main office. Uh, he's basically his parlor where he receives guests. And, uh, and one of my colleagues was about to say something. And he raises his hands and says, mm-hmm. no, no, before we start lying, let us pray. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, so, and then, of course, you know, uh, after he'd finished praying, um, the first thing is was he chided the the staff um, that we had not been given cake and tea, and uh, so now it made sense like why they yeah, were insisting. Yeah. <laughs> no, he was a completely funny man, wow. um, and so full of life, um, uh, and you know, always laughing. And uh, he was excited that uh, we were doing this. Um, of course, he had a you know a very complicated history um, with Mrs. Um, Winnie Mandela. Mm-hmm. Um, you know they were both activists together, and then 
you know, things took a turn um, and they adopted different approaches in terms of um, fighting apartheid, mm -hmm. which led to them seeing each other at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He as chairman, she was basically, I suppose, a person of interest mm -hmm. in the investigation of human rights abuses. What was it like having um, Mrs. Madikizela Mandela in the audience to see Winnie? <laughs> Did you get to chat with her? Well, again, with um, Mrs. Matigizela Mandela, we, we, out of courtesy, you know, went to her Beforehand. and told her that this is happening. And she uh, was very excited um, and didn't give us any legal uh, problems whatsoever uh, or talk of, you know, payments, et cetera. So we're very grateful for that. And I think she's always wanted truth to be out there, not only about her life, but about those times. Because mm. <clears throat> there is, a, um, uh, I think, a tendency in South Africa to skim over um, that part of our history um, in order to focus on reconciliation without mm. really exploring why do we need to reconcile in mm -hmm. the first place. Mm. So she was very interested that the story should be should get out there, uh, warts and all. Um, and we tried to present the story uh, in the opera, as you see, without you know, taking any sides, presenting the story um, as we found it and assembled it from, you know, from our sources, from people that were interviewed, um, etc. We were very, very cautious that this can never be seen as a hagiography. Mm. Um, Winnie mm. Matizela Mandela was imperfect. And this thing, loads of things that she did that she's deeply uh, regretful for. Um, mm. And the unanswered questions like the murder uh, of the teenage activist Stompy. So all those things we just thought we should actually start there, which is why the opera starts during the Truth and Reconciliation hearings. Right. And then, you know, we decide to go back in time, et cetera, et cetera, and then we come back to the Truth and Reconciliation and the moment when she's apologizing to the mother of the slain young mm -hmm. activist. Mm -hmm. um, in person, Mrs. Winnie Matigizela Mandela was a character, always immaculately dressed, of mm -hmm. course. Well, she always arrives late. Uh, I think she arrived like half an hour late <laughs> for her first lunch. But, you know, she brightens up the room um, w when she does. She also arrived half an hour late for the opera so we had to oh, hold no the, <laughs> was she an opening night yes guest, we had to I hold imagine. opening night by ah, half yes. an hour until she uh -huh. arrived uh -huh. uh, but of course the whole place lit up uh, you know, she she's a hugger mm. but she, not only does she hug you very tightly but she she kisses you on the lips for a rather <laughs> uncomfortably long time <laughs> I never knew this about so her. So always remember that okay. about her, is that yes. she hugs and kisses everybody. Yes. Um, and, uh, and of course, I mean, she's a repository of, of wow, of, of amazing South African history because she was a center of, of, of mm. some of these critical events. Mm. So to spend even an hour with her, you know, the details that come out of her mouth, you know, it's quite something. The Opening night at the State Theatre in, in Pretoria, again, was a curious affair. We had stayed up uh, until the early hours of the morning trying to craft a speech for her because she, she said that she wanted to thank everybody that was involved. Could we, like, 
draft something of what she can say, she can include in her remarks. And of course, we sent her something very brief and that, you know, acknowledged the contributions of everybody who had made that moment possible. When she got on the stage, the whole theatre erupted into song. I mean, it was, you know, you know, all of us, the artists, the cast and everybody on stage had taken our bows and, you know, it was very unusual in, in the opera to have the audience singing. Yes. <laughs> what were started. they singing? Oh, they were just singing. Um, it's actually on YouTube. Is it? Uh, they were just singing uh, a song about her, Winnie Mandela. Yeah. And, you know, it just went on. Mm. Um, and she walked towards the microphone and the person with her speech, I could see, was like at least four meters behind her, looking rather lost. And I get very nervous in uh, in, in these kinds of <clears throat> situations when you invite politicians to events, cultural events, and there's an open microphone without a script. And yes, my fears came true. Uh-huh. <laughs> she started, um, you know, shouting out political slogans. Uh, you can see in the in the in the YouTube video. And then she stopped herself. So, oh. I I keep on forgetting this is not a political rally. And then everybody (laughs) just like laughed. And then she said, you know, uh, I've never been on the stage of the state theater here in Pretoria. As you know, it was built by the apartheid government. Mm. And he says, like, you know, back in the day, this was one of the targets that we wanted to bomb. Yeah. And of course, the television cameras were there, and I was like, "Oh Lord!" But yeah. everybody, you know, kind of kind of enjoyed the the, the event, yeah. and I was certainly glad that she had, you know, she was alive to witness that moment. You mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that the New Africa Passion is it's a sacred work. I wonder, is there anything sacred, perhaps, about your music, even if it isn't? involving, you know, a gospel text. Or maybe not. Maybe you feel that the secular and the sacred do sort of live far apart. I'm just curious what your thoughts might be. Well, I mean, in the other works I've done, I think in my very first presentation here at the ISM, at the colloquium, I talked a bit about the Archbishop Desmond Tutu character Mm -hmm. and how I integrated some black hymnody in the background in the orchestra. Hymnody has been a huge part of music making in the part of South Africa that I come from. Largely, it's um, due to missionization and the establishment of a very important missionary uh, institution, the Lovedale Institute. It started off as a mission station which grew into a school. Mm. The interesting thing about it, I was discussing this with my students because we were looking at some of these hymns, is that it had a printing press. So it was founded in the 1820s. And so a lot of hymns and other compositions, choral composition by black composers, were published by Lovedale, which is an Alice in the Eastern Cape. So I grew up with that tradition of hymnody and all these Lovedale books, um, especially the the hymns. Mm. And I I mean, I think everybody is aware of the choral tradition in South Africa. And so there's a lot that I bring to this new work, um, into that. I think it's a way for me, in a way of showing the rest of the world, my take on that tradition. The, the hymnody in South Africa is unique in that it 
in a space where there was a great deal of censorship mm -hmm. and political repression, these hymns were surrogates for political expression, mm. expressed ideas of freedom, um, but not in a very direct way, um, but really relying on the scriptures to, in a way, signal political ideas. And you have this tradition also of these hymns becoming protest music. Um, and also, um, I think, to keep people's spirits up during um, uh, a time of oppression. Um, and some of them uh, made it into the ANC camps in Angola, across the border, uh, where the guerrilla fighters were. And the words, for instance, would be different there because there was a, a much more open environment to express a political opinion. So, for instance, a hymn like Senzeni Na would then be translated uh, in the camps as, in, in a much more direct fashion as, you know, the Boers are dogs and mm -hmm. Forster mm -hmm. is the biggest dog of all kind of mm -hmm. thing. Forster was the prime minister. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, locally within South Africa and especially in in, in sort of like liturgical environment, Senzenina will be, what have we done? What have we done? And, you know, these appeals, you know, to God for mercy for, right. for the suffering of the people. So what I'm hearing you say, perhaps, is that there's always a kind of blending between the sacred and the secular. That is what happened in South Africa, is how this church music and all this liturgical music went into a political context and in a way, as I said, uh, was a, a form of surrogacy for political expression. Mm. That's fantastic. Wow, Bongani, this has just been a treat. Thank you so much for your time. Um, we look forward to getting to hear your work, hopefully, in Boston 2023-2024. That's right? Um, yes. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. It's been such a pleasure. And of course, uh, this fellowship here at the ISM has been such a thrill for me. Thank you. For more information on the ISM Fellows Program, please visit ism.yale.edu forward slash fellowships. Please join us again for more episodes of ISM Fellows in Conversation.